that's wrong. Welcome, Venerable Rabina. I'm just looking Thank for you. Oh, there oh, you are. We are. We're all here. I'm here. <laughs> Welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And I hear it's very early for some people. So you, if you are prostrators, you do your trip. If not, you sit down and relax. Okay. Okay, we just got a couple of Oh, right. So let me just find, let me just find our text so I can have everything ready just in case we need to refer to it. Hang on a minute. Okay. And something else here. All right. Okay, nearly there. Okay. I'll leave everything, I'll leave everything for the last minute. Because <laughs> Zoom is so easy now, you just go press. Yes. So simple. Now, where's the text? Maybe this is the text. That's the text. Here we go. I hope you got your text, the phone version and the tablet version. Yep. As yep. well as it out. So did people people receive that? Yeah. I hope so. Have you checked with everybody? The text, there's two things. There's Lama's book if you've got that, and you might have either got the hardback if it's if it's available, or you might have had the you've got the electronic version. But I also send a text with a lot of the teachings in it from the book. Uh, emailed to everybody. To yes, I hope you've Emailed, so I hope they've all got it, please. And there's a phone one, a version for your skinny phones, and there's a version for the tablet. And uh, okay, so we're ready to go. Okay, welcome, Venerable Rabina. Thank you so much for coming to present this teaching. And to everyone here, um, if you have not heard Venerable Rabina speak before, you are in for a treat. If you have heard Venerable Rabina speak before, you are also in for a treat. Um, we're told many times in the teachings that the uh, Tibetan word for meditation means to familiarize with. And Venerable Rabina was the editor of Lama Yeshi's teaching on Mahamudra. So she has spent many, many months meditating upon this text. So we are very fortunate to be able to receive these teachings from Venerable Rabina, who's had those experiences with the text and can present to us in her usual clear, precise, and relevant to the modern day way these teachings. So we are, feel very fortunate to have you here and would like to uh, offer a mandala. Okay, let's do it. You're gonna sing? Yes. Okay, good. So what we're doing, this, what this is, it's a, very, it's a very Tibetan meaning, but everything, it has meaning. It's a wonderful meaning. So basically we're going to imagine offering all the contents of the universe so use your creative imagination, all the marvelous things that make people happy, offering them to the Buddha as if the Buddha were right here. And if we begin to even understand what Buddha means, we know that the Buddha mind is pervading the universe. So we're offering it as a request for the teaching. That's the point. It's very auspicious. And you can so. see we've got this, we've got extensive offerings here for you, um, including oh, macadamias, Vegemite, miso. And all God. My Vegemite here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I don't think so. Very happy. Thank you so much. Marvelous. Go on then. So you all just join in by saying the words in English or in Tibetan as you wish, and let 
Jason can be the umze. He can be the chant leader. Sajihi pohoki Jogshing mehetog Trahamri rahablingji Nihi degen padi Sangye As we now say this one little mantra at the end, we imagine that Buddha so happily receives our offerings. Okay, wonderful. All right. So now this next little prayer, which I will lead, this is a tradition. Um, um, it's, a, it's, it's sort of two parts, okay? It's two parts. The first part is, is for those of us who already identify with being Buddhist. And so it's re reiterating our reliance on the Buddha and his teachings. And the second part is, state, is for all of us. And it's really just stating what the Lamas would say is our motivation for doing our action of being here together, listening to the teachings. And so we might say stating our purpose. What's, what's our purpose? Why are we here together? Why are we going to listen together to these words so that we can develop our own amazing potential, so that we can become a Buddha, so we can help others. That's the big long-term goal. So we make that our motivation. Sange charang soke chognam la jang cho badu dagni kyab suchi dagi chanyen gi pasonam ki drola penche sange drupa shok Sange charang soke chognam la jang cho badu dagni kyab suchi dagi chanyen gi pasonam ki drola penche sange drupa shok Sange charang soke chognam la, jancho baru dagni kyap suchi, dagi chanyen gi pesonam ki, jola penchir sange drupa shok. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. So it's, um, I'm still in Santa Fe. I've been here four months now. I cannot believe it. It's the longest I've been in one place for 12 years. 
So it's kind of interesting. But what's interesting is <clears throat> I'm happy to travel around and not have a home, but I'm also quite happy to sit and have a home. So it's just as well. Otherwise, I'd be crazy. So the, the centre here, Dr. Um, Nobuling, Charmaine, who runs the centre, she's very kindly offered me her little house. She lives around the corner with her boyfriend, so it's most convenient. And um, yeah, very content to be here. So this morning I was talking to the Russians in Moscow. They're probably in bed now. Now I'm talking to Melbourne. It's wonderful. This Zoom is too much. I love it. Okay. So Mahamudra. As Lama says in the book, what Mahamudra, what does this mean? It's a Sanskrit word. Maha meaning great and mudra meaning seal, literally like a seal, you know. So it seems a bit odd initially, a great seal, kind of what do you mean by this? But what it's referring to really simply is, is emptiness. Hang on a second. Just have to fix something here. What it's referring to is emptiness. And emptiness is, is what the, the reality of everything's not having an intrinsic nature, the reality of everything's emptiness, the, the reality of everything's lack of an independent nature, that reality is actually what defines everything as existing. It's the one fundamental characteristic of everything that exists. In other words, it seals, it's, it seals everything as existing. So, of course, that sounds very sweet words and kind of abstract if we don't know what Buddha's talking about, and then we don't, so we're going to describe. But the, the other point about Mahamudra, in general, when you say Mahamudra, what you're referring to is a type of meditation. And so as Lama says in the book, it's all about emptiness, but he said, oh, we've heard all about that before. Why is it called Mahamudra? Because in this particular, in this framework, within this, using this particular text of the 17th century Panchen Lama, Lozan Choki Gyaltsen, one of the main Galugpa masters of the past, it's um, a presentation of a particular meditation technique of how to realize emptiness. So it's it's a it's a there's sutra mahamudra and there's tantra mahamudra and all that it's always taught in the framework. Um, the sutra one is like where the details are given about how to meditate on emptiness, but it's always given within the framework of receiving a highest yoga tantra initiation and then at the tantric explanation of it. But Lama nine tenths of the teaching you know that he gave actually in in uh, at a Tisha center in Australia before the, the center was grown, there's a little church there in this, um, if people have been there, it used to be Sandhurst town. It used to be uh, a little kind of mock gold, 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 uh, what do you call it? Gold rush, a gold rush village, right? It's no longer existing, belonging to the, the Green family in a place near Eagle Hawk in Victoria, two hours north of Melbourne. So there was a little church there in this little mock gold gold you know gold rush village and they did the teaching in that little church i think about 80 people there 90 people there 1982 lama gave it so he gave his first highest yoga tantra initiation before that haruka vajrasatra haruka chakrasambara so we're not going to be doing it like that i'm just going to be so you know i mean it's we're going to talk about it using lama's book but i'm not qualified to give a highest yoga tantra initiation and we're not going to be doing that at all we won't even be talking about the tantric aspect of it we'll be talking we'll be discussing the this sutra approach to how to, to how to meditate. So the thing is about it, um, it's how to realize emptiness through meditation, it's directly meditation. So as Lama points out, so that one point about it is that it's using, and this is what we're discussing in Moscow this morning, uh, it's, it was the, the, the module, discovering Buddhism module on meditation. And there are, in Buddhism, there are two modes of meditation, two ways of using your mind in meditation. 
So, and, and, and as Jason pointed out, as, as Lama points out, as they all point out, the Tibetan word, gom, the verb to meditate, is, is translated as the English to familiarize, to become familiar with. So initially, that's quite odd to us. And that's because we have these many misconceptions about meditation. So clearly, part of what we're going to be doing here, you know, is describing what meditation is and how and how you use it. But here, the, the bigger picture is how we're going to meditate on emptiness, how to get a taste for emptiness. So, um, so as Lama points out, there are two, and, and he's quoting Panchen Lama, the text, there are two main, there are two ways, there are two ways in general, in the, the entire Buddhist way of presenting things, there are two ways of um, becoming familiar with something, learning something, making it your knowledge, making it your experience. And you can think of music in exactly the same way, don't mystify this. And one, the, the typical way, and the way that normally we would do everything, you know, if you want to learn to play Bach, you want to learn, you first, this is, this is the first model, first method. You would first learn the theories. It's pretty obvious, wouldn't you? You'd have to do that. Most of us are not capable. It's not, it's not even possible unless we're highly advanced beings to go straight to a piano and just play directly, directly experientially. So we learn the theory first and then we play the piano on the basis of theory. Think about your life. That's how you learn every single thing. Now we can see some things we learn more quickly we seem to have more familiarity with it. Now, of course, we know very well because if we understand Buddhism, you know, we've come into this life programmed with our past tendencies. Some people don't, I didn't need to learn anger at all. My mother didn't have to teach me anger when I was a little girl. I had it down. I had it programmed in my mind. And we can see with many of our tendencies, we're like that. Of course, we take that for granted in our culture, but that's the consequence of karma. That's the result of having done it before. We've come programmed the moment we get into our mummy's womb, off we go again, you know? So we can see with some things we're not good at at all. I had to learn how to be patient, you know? Now we can all see, I mean, you go on YouTube and I'm just fascinated by some of these little, little tiny children from the age of three and four, who play unbelievable Bach, Mozart, all the rest. You can't believe your eyes and your ears. You know, you're convinced that someone's photoshopped YouTube. It's just too unbelievable to be true. But there's so many examples. And there's one particular little boy from Russia that I just can't get over. And he's got a huge fan base on his YouTube channel, you know. Since he's like three, he's now nine, playing unbelievable music, writing music, playing with orchestras, extraordinary. So then we get, you know, and, and that's, so what I'm getting at here is this, the typical way to learn, would you learn the theories and then you get the knowledge. Now, the Mahamudra approach, and that's why I mentioned this little Russian boy, the Mahamudra approach is the opposite. The Mahamudra approach, in other words, okay, so in the monasteries relating to emptiness, as Lama Yeshi said, you know, as he would often say, we, we, we did the first method. We learned all the theory. We studied and studied and studied and debated years and years and years of studying the philosophy. And then you go and then you meditate on it to get the experience. That's exactly how we get everything. That's exactly how you learn Bach. But the other method this is where the little Russian boy comes in. The other method, no, that's, this is the Mahamudra method. There's not intellect. As Lama Yeshe says, Mahamudra is no dharma, no knowledge, no, no, no theory, no, no philosophy. It's experience. So what this means is it's like going to the piano, just straight away, going to the piano and intuiting the music. Now, it's fairly obvious, like that little Russian boy, he was capable. 
So it indicates you've already done it before, and it will be exactly the same here. The great meditators, since they're some of them are little children, they already have the experience. They start and they get the knowledge. And then from the experience, they're able to express the theory. <clears throat> so can you imagine going to the piano and just intuiting Bach, and then once you've played it, you then you, you kind of go in reverse and you now express the theory because you need to teach somebody else how to do it. So that's that's really why Mahamudra is more advanced. Now, on the face of it, though, everyone gets very excited in the West. We think, oh, I don't have to study. I don't have to do any prostrations. I don't have to do any philosophy. I just have to lie, close, close my eyes and I'll get to realize emptiness. That's like saying you just put your hands on the piano and play Bach. So it, it's very humbling. You can see it's a power powerful method it's a powerful method it's direct and we can all try it but most of us aren't qualified because we haven't done that much before so this is exactly the analogy it's like getting the experience first and then you present the theory but the typical one and the way we teach here and the way I'm teaching now and the way you, all our classes is the theory first you listen to it you think about it you internalize it in meditation and then you get the experience well the Mahamudra approach is the opposite so this is why it's more advanced. On the face of it, it seems simpler. It seems easier, you know. <clears throat> so at the, like at the end of the book, Lama has all this advice, just practical advice to people after the course. And one of the, one of the questions always is, oh, you mean I don't have to study anymore? I can just go to, the, go to the piano and play Bach. I can just go to meditation and realize emptiness. He said, yeah, sure. If you can keep your concentration 24 hours a day, and if you can just realize it, that's for sure you don't need to do anything else. But most of us need to because we're not that qualified. But it's still a powerful practice to do if you combine it in your life with your study. You just go straight to the experience. So, okay. It's, um, it's using, this Ms. Mahamudra method is using the two modes of meditation. They're exactly the same as if you teach them in the sutra approach. So the, the sutra approach the, the ordinary approach, the one we just mentioned before, theory first and then experience, the two modes of meditation are you learn the first mode, which is learning to concentrate. Learn, you, you, you attempt, you have to learn to get calm abiding, shamatha, which is the term, which is the name given to the technique, but also it's the term, it's, it's, the, it's indicating the end result. When you've got calm abiding, you've, you've developed this incredible, amazing, sophisticated psychological skill invented by the Indians well before the Buddha. They're the geniuses who, who cultivated this technique, who first investigated the nature of self, as His Holiness puts it, these Indians more, th more than 3,000 years ago. And then Buddha studied in that tradition as far as he could go, learning all these amazing techniques, went as far as he could go in understanding the nature of self. And then he diverged in his own direction, directly in relation to his own experiential findings about the nature of self, which of course implies understanding the ultimate nature, which is the word, this word emptiness. So the first, you know, the, tip, the first, first mode of meditation, you need to learn to get concentration. Now, Lama in this book, and this is always like this, he always gave you a real taste of what you'd be like if you had these experiences. So it gives us some inspiration, you know. It's a very technical, it's, it's, very, it's taught in a very detailed technical way exactly how you get concentration. 
So it's got amazing results. I mean, Lama describes you, and we're going to go through this. We'll discuss it. You know, you get you 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 get when you've got single point of concentration, and it's a state of mind that is not posited even remotely in modern psychology and modern neuroscience because it's a subtler level of mind. It doesn't the level of mind that we talk about that depends upon a brain is a very gross level. It's a sensory level and a very gross conceptual level. We have no equivalent state of mind even possible in neuroscience and psychology, which of course is why when we think about these Buddhist things from the Western point of view, we just think it's cosmic and religion, you know? But this is real, actual stuff. I've been around for 3,000 years and this technique is, is, un, is since 3,000 years has not disappeared yet. It's still got living experiential people practicing it and accomplishing it every day. So here, if we can then imagine a state of mind that's more subtle, that doesn't need the brain, we'd better really get clear what Buddha means by the mind. So Lama talks about this beautifully in the book, you know. So mind in Buddhism is the word we use to refer to the inner experiences, whether it's anger, hate, compassion, kindness, intelligence, being good at music, being good at football, whatever it might be. It's your tendencies. And of course, we're so used to thinking of it in the, in the materialist way that that's the point to that part of your brain and this part of your brain. You can do that. But the, the, the fundamental point in Buddhism and this whole technique is dependent upon this being valid is that mind isn't the brain. It doesn't mean it doesn't function. It doesn't mean they're not interdependently connected, but only at a grosser level. You've got to posit that possibility that we've got subtler levels of cognition that don't depend upon the brain. I mean, if you were to see a person who had accomplished this karma biting, they'd look like they're dead because the grosser level, the sensory, the brain, the physical, and the and the and conceptuality would have completely ceased. So, of course, that's completely mystical to us. We can't even conceptualize that, you know. But this, we have to posit this possibility. So, con so concentration meditation, karma biting, shamatha, and this is. You know, the world vaguely these days kind of refers to the application of that technique as mindfulness. One of the, you know, and, and of course there are 40, 47 varieties of mindfulness and that's okay. But, you know, because Buddha doesn't own it, he's not, he hasn't got copyright on meditation. He didn't make this up. He's not a creator. He's observed this. So we're talking Buddha's view of this meditation here, not the world's view. There's many variations and that's perfectly fine. So single point of concentration, the first of the two modes of meditation, is the ability to harness the seemingly uncontrolled series of constant thoughts, isn't it? I mean, this is something that we totally take for granted in our culture. And this is one of the most marvelous things about Buddhist psychology, you know, extraordinary actually, that we've got this capacity to completely harness this uncontrolled berserk series of thoughts, which is so encouraging even if we haven't got it yet, and most of us in this life won't get single point of concentration, because in order to really get it properly, you've got to give up sex, drugs, and rock and roll, probably become a monk or a nun, live in vows, do lots of purification, and literally, not just metaphorically, but go off to the mountains for several years. They're the right conditions in which you can really get this single point of concentration, this shamatha, you know. 99% of us won't do that, so we won't probably get shamatha in this life, but we will we can begin it, we can start it, we can get some experience, we can understand what it is and practice a bit every day. 
So, you know, I mentioned Lama in the book, he talks, just he gives us some of the qualities that we have. And this is very encouraging because this is our human potential. As Lama says, our human potential is absolutely mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing when we think of the Buddhist approach to the mind, you know. So it ought to be very encouraging for us. But it just seems like mystical. I mean, the mind will be completely crystal clear, super subtle, super sharp. And even when you're out of meditation, you'd have absolute effortless control over every tiny thought. Your mind will continuously be completely blissful. I mean, this sounds hilarious to even use the word blissful as a serious word. As Lama says, rapture, ecstasy. This is like hard to believe. It's almost embarrassing to hear that your mind could be in ecstasy. I mean, when we think about being in ecstasy, we, we, we imagine we'd be completely berserk, you know, but we, it's hard to conceptualize this. But this is the Buddhist approach. We've got this amazing potential. So all of those experiences, they're like byproducts. The key point, the key point, the reason, the fundamental reason to get concentration is because we want to get insight. And this is the word for the second mode of meditation insight, as Orozama calls it, special insight. This is the word vipassana, shamatha vipassana. Now, there's a, there's a type of practice, there's a sort of many centers around the world that teach vipassana. And it's almost like its own religion now in a way. And there's something rude, but basically Buddha, is, it means insight. And Buddha taught many variations. He taught many kinds of insight meditation. But let's unpack it because we get so confused about the meaning of all this, you know, that the technique that people use with the one that's most popular, you get your concentration meditation first, then whatever degree of concentration you have, you then go to the second mode of meditation to try and get some insight. And the technique that Buddha taught is to scan the, the I've never done it, you know, I don't know it, I've not done it. So if anybody can correct my mistaken um, conception, please do so. But it's, it's a, it, there are many techniques. So the, the technique that Buddha gets us to do is to use our focused mind, which we gain in the first mode of meditation, to then scan the sensations of our body. So then you think, well, what am I getting insight into my body for? Well, you're not. This is a big mistake. We're so obsessed with our body in the West. We think it's all about the body. No, because we've got a body and we've got senses and that's, our, that's the first level of our mind. It's easy to then start paying attention to the different sensory experiences and observing that they're impermanent. So what we want to get insight into by doing that particular technique is into impermanence. That's the goal. The goal isn't to get insight into the body, but you're using your focused mind, got in the first mode, shamatha, to the degree of any focus that you have, you know, even a little bit, you then scan the experiences of your body. And the, the insight will be that, wow, everything changes, everything's impermanent. This is Lord Buddha's first, first teaching that everything's impermanent, you know. So now here in the Mahayana approach, and, and Buddha taught this in every, in every level, he's taught these in all the different teachings, there's also a method to how to get insight into ultimate reality, into emptiness, and that's what Mahamudra is. So here, the special insight the particular way of using it, which is unique to this technique, is a method for getting insight into emptiness. Emptiness of emptiness of the mind. It's very specifically to get insight into the emptiness of our own mind, our own consciousness. That's what it is precisely. But as Lama points out in the book, and he spends two thirds of the book, most of the book teaching, talking about that, what we start with is attempting to get insight into the emptiness of our self. So two modes of meditation, 
concentration or shamatha, calm abiding, the first model, first mode, which is what most people think of as meditation. We're so addicted to that word, we think that's the meaning of meditation. No, it's the first mode of meditation. And from the Buddhist point of view, it's only the beginning. It's a bit like you, you have a knife. So the first mode of meditation is to sharpen the knife. So you don't just look at a pretty knife that's sharp. You now have to use it to cut something. So here the mind has to get sharp, but you don't just sit there in the nice bliss that you will experience. That's not the purpose. Is now you use that sharp laser-like mind to in the second mode of meditation to get insight into the emptiness finally first of your own self and then finally emptiness of the mind itself because the object of concentration in this meditation is not the sensations of the body to get insight it's the actual mind itself one's consciousness itself one's thoughts we learn to focus on the thoughts. So we're going to go into all that, but this is the essence of, the, of what we're trying to do. And so as Lama keeps telling us, because this text by Panchen Lama in the 17th century, and as I said, he's one of the great Gelupas, you know, one of the great Tsongkhapa scholars, you know, as Tsongkhapa, as Lama quotes Tsongkhapa, this meditation is so powerful because the mind itself is unbelievably powerful because our mind is so powerful. So we're going to go to this all gradually. We're going to this all gradually. Okay. Okay. So we're going to use the two modes of meditation. We're going to learn about the two modes of meditation. And we're going to learn about how to concentrate on our thoughts. So even, and this is the thing is now, this is, you can do this in a really classic way on your cushion. And that's what we did in this retreat. It was a retreat. I wasn't there, sorry, but the people did that. It was a retreat mode. Much of the teachings in the book was given like as guided meditations, you know. Actually, we're doing this audio book of it at the moment. Wisdom, we've organized, I've organized with wisdom for me to do it. And I'm in, and I'm an hour from Albuquerque where our um, recording guy is. And so we're doing it. Um, I'm reading the book and then we're going to, we decided to take some of the meditation chapters and read them as guided meditations, which will be really tasty because that's how, that's how Lama gave it. He gave it like guided meditations, very experiential. Okay. So why do we want to get concentration? Because the Buddha is telling us that our mind, our thoughts and feelings and emotions at the moment, if we're called a samsaric person, that's Buddha's word, means we're suffering. We're caught up in suffering, which means for Buddha, we're caught up in a bunch of neurotic states of mind that we've been, we're very familiar with that aren't, that cause us to be out of touch with reality. That's really the key point that Buddha's making across the board, that we're, that we're, um, that we're completely not in touch with reality. We're living in la-la land. And our, and our mind is the reason, because our mind is the word given to all our thoughts, all our concepts, all our feelings, all our emotions. And, you know, Buddha's saying for the life after life after life, because our mind goes back and back as far as Buddha's concerned. It doesn't come from mummy or daddy. It doesn't come from the brain. It's not a, it doesn't begin in the mother's womb, and it doesn't come from a creator. It's got its own continuity. This is a fundamental point in Buddhism. And we come into this life programmed with our past tendencies you know so many of those tendencies if we look at the buddhist model of the mind we've got lots of neurotic deluded fear-based eye-based tendencies which for the buddha completely are what cause us suffering we've got and which have caused us to live in la la land and are deeply disturbing second we have the valid appropriate 
good, reasonable states of mind, which are at the core of our being and which do not cause us suffering because we're in touch with reality to some degree. And then thirdly, we have all these mechanics of the mind, if you like, all the parts of our mind that we need to do to function, to do anything. You know, um, and we'll go into all this. So we, Buddha says basically that he has found from his own experience that we have all got the potential to rid our mind utterly of that first lot. He has found from his own experience, he's not a creator, this does not come from revelation, he's not guessing, he's not speculating, he didn't make it up. He has found directly from his own experience, that's where he diverged from the Hindus, that we can rid the mind utterly of all the neuroses, all the fear, all the delusions, all the ignorance, all the attachment, all the anger, all the pride, all the jealousy, all the anxiety, all the fear, all the depression. This is a shocking concept, actually. Because in neuroscience, in modern psychology, it is just a given that they are parts of a normal person. This is where Buddha is so radical. This is just Buddha's teaching from day one, you know. This is the unique approach. This is the unique point that Buddha, this makes Buddha unique. You know, that this stuff is not at the core of our being. This stuff is adventitious, as they say, which means it can be removed. And not only that, Buddha has found that all the other parts of our mind, the second category of states of mind, love and compassion and kindness and generosity, they are at the core of our being. They are inextricably linked to our mind. They are who we really are. Now, this takes time to hear. We all know the word anger, we all know the word love, but we so take them as we give equal status to them as, a, as normal parts of a normal person. There's no way we talk in our culture that, that makes a distinction between them, you know, but that's Buddha's unique approach. And it's a revelation when we can start to understand ourselves in these terms, you know. In fact, the word Buddha tells us exactly this. The word Buddha, the etymology of the word Buddha is very tasty. I always quote this, and it's very powerful to hear it. The first syllable, Bud, and Lama mentions this in the book, the first syllable, Bud, or the Sanskrit equivalent, or the Tibetan equivalent, Sangye, the first syllable implies this eradication from our very being, from our mind, all the rubbish, which is very shocking. But when we hear it, it's extremely liberating. I mean, it's, it's an outrageous idea. This stuff's not intrinsic to who we are. We, we can get rid of it. Okay, don't hold your breath. It's going to take quite a few lifetimes unless you're really advanced. But this is amazing to hear this. It's very encouraging. And not only that, but we can develop to perfection this, all the good stuff, the virtue, the, the intelligence, the kindness, the love, the compassion. This stuff is intrinsic to who we are. This, is, this is, defines us. And this is, the, this is the, what's implied by the second syllable, Buddha. So the, if we even hear that, the end result of all this work is Buddha, rid of all the rubbish and full of all the goodness, that, tells, that implies the methodology already, doesn't it? And that's really the key job of being a Buddhist from day to day in your meditation, on, in, the, in the toilet, driving the car while you're asleep. The key job of being a Buddhist, what defines you actually as a Buddhist, what is what defines you as a Buddhist, isn't wearing these 14th century clothes, isn't having a bald head, isn't having statues, isn't, you know, saying mantras. That doesn't define you as a Buddhist. Is not having faith in Buddha even. That doesn't define you as a Buddhist. What defines you as a Buddhist is, this is the actual job well, as what, what, when you be, no, refuge is defining you as a Buddhist. But what makes you a Buddhist is when you start to do the work of identifying the neuroses and distinguishing them from the goodness. In other words, all the time they talk in the teachings about we have to learn to know what to, we have to learn to know what to get rid of, and we have to learn to know what to adopt. 
And that means we have to learn to recognize the delusions and learn to slowly change them. We have to learn to recognize the virtues and slowly grow them. And that is what ends up as a Buddha. That's it's really a simple concept. And once we get it intellectually, it tells us the methodology. It tells us the job to be done. It's very powerful. And this particular view of the mind is quite unique to the Buddha. I mean, the mind is Buddha's expertise. It's a shock to us because when we think of Buddhism, we think of religion, so we think of a soul or a spirit. Buddha doesn't use those words. He's always used the word mind, you know, consciousness. He doesn't use, we have no extra component. We have a mind, a consciousness. But his view of our mind is so radically different. It isn't physical, like I said. It's not a function of the brain. It, 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 the grosser level of our mind absolutely functions in, in relation to the brain. No argument there. The brain is definitely a very clear indicator of what is going on in your mind. That's the way to say what the brain is. And that's not, I'm not trying to insult neuroscientists, for sure. But we have subtler levels of mind, Buddha says, subtler levels that don't depend upon the mind, that, that we are not aware of because we never get past the brain level. We never get past the sensory you know, we never get past the body. As Lama Yeshi says, we make the body the boss. You know, we're so in, we're so enamored of our body. Everything, for as far as we're concerned, is physical. Even our emotions, we only notice them when they hit the body. You only notice you're angry when you're shaking. You only notice you're depressed when your body is inert and you can't get out of bed. It's because we so identify with being the body. So to get this view that your mind isn't your body. Your mind is a grosser level. It's the tip of the iceberg. It's a much more powerful. It doesn't dismiss the body. Like, you know, Buddha gets us to use the body. Buddha gets us to have experiences of our sensory in order to realize impermanence. So we start where we are. We start with the body. And I mean, many, and there are many, I mean, there are many, like, for example, many teachers, many teachings in Buddhism that also get you to become familiar with your body. Different people have different approaches, you know. And it can be a very powerful catalyst to help us finally understand our mind, because mind is the point. Mind is the, is the one continuity, you know, from life to life. So as Lama says, there's a wonderful way Lama talks about, and this is how they talk in Buddhism, that our mind functions like a mirror. This is very surprising. We're so used to the neuroscientific approach of describing all the, the, the bits and pieces, you know, the neurons and all that. Nothing wrong. That's not the language Buddha uses. He's using the di very direct language. So mind, mind is mind. When we say the word my mind, we tend to think of this concrete thing called a brain, or like this kind of you know, this this sort of package of, of thoughts somewhere. But it's more subjectively used in Buddhism. It's more subjectively used. You know, it's like more really the word awareness is almost an equivalent. You could almost say awareness. That's more spacious for us, isn't it? That's your mind. One's awareness, one's capacity for cognition, capacity for awareness. So we're aware, we're co we cognize mainly in two different ways. We cognize things at a sensory level, and that's where the physical body comes in, but the sensory consciousness. And then we have mental consciousness. Sensory consciousness and mental consciousness. Awareness, it, the, the verb to be aware, the verb to cognize, the verb to know, that's the actual job of the mind. It's the definition. The first part of the definition or the second part of the definition of anything is what it does. So, you know, a cup holds tea. 
you know, a light shines light, a lamp, you know, um, a, a mind cognizes. So it's a, it's a really powerful way to hear how Buddha talks. The mind cognizes things. The mind is aware of things. The mind knows things. So a traditional definition of mind in Buddhism, every definition has two parts, one way of describing. The first part tells you it's conventional characteristics. So here, the first part of the definition of the mind, and Lama quotes this, is that it is clear. Now, don't get all that cosmic. Don't get cosmic with that. It just means it's not physical. It's not physical. That tells you. But then the second part tells you what the mind does. So clarity or it's clear and simply the word awareness. That's your mind. So we have two ways in which we are aware, two ways in which we cognize, two ways in which we know things not in a sense of being clever and knowing a lot of answers, but the bare bones function of awareness itself. So the two ways, and this is very powerful for us to understand, to really get clear the distinction between these two ways. One is called sensory consciousness and one is called mental. We've talked about this before. So mental consciousness that's that's where the workshop is, as Lama Zopa says. The mental consciousness is your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your love, your hate, your psychosis, your joy, you name it, all the rubbish bits and all the good bits. That's your mental consciousness. That's what we have to become intimately familiar with. That's what we have to unpack and unravel. That's what we have to learn to become intimately familiar with. The other part of us, sensory consciousness. That's the part of our mind, remember it's not physical, that functions through the medium of the eyeball, the ears, the drum, the nerves, the tongue, the physical. The, the physical does not cognize things. That's very clear in Buddhism. Your eyeball does not see an iPad, you know. Your eyeball, as long as it's functioning well and the eyelid is open, and then this, that part of your mind that functions through the medium of the eyeball and the nerves and all the bits, that consciousness, eye consciousness, is what cognizes this shape and color here. So the sensory consciousness is actually very limited. We give it way more power than it actually has, as Ramayeshi puts. So it's very powerful to understand this. Eye consciousness merely cognizes here this shape and color. That's all it's capable of. The rest of the information, that is an iPad, it is Rabina's iPad, it is a very well-designed iPad. All of that is your mental consciousness having opinions about it. So our mental consciousness is what we're going to be using in Mahamudra and is what we have to unpack and unravel in order to get to see its true nature, its ultimate nature. So Lama says the mind in general cognizes like a mirror. And this is so powerful to understand. When we can understand this, we really get how Buddha is telling us the way our mind works and why we get caught up in nonsense. So think of your doubts. We're discussing your mental consciousness now, not your sensory. So your mental consciousness, think of it like a mirror, which is odd, but think of it that way. So whatever, as Lama Zopa puts it, Lama Zopa puts it, whatever's out in the world, whatever's out there, Whatever's out there, how whatever is out there, and this is a good way to put it, appears back to us. In other words, reflects in our mirror. 
is a, is according to what the mirror is it like so if your mirror is as lama yeshi says if your mirror is covered in dust it is obvious that whatever appears to you whatever is reflected in your mirror will be will be completely dominated by the dust i mean if you've got a real clear crystal clear still body of water you know on on a say a river bank and the, there's the river there's the water so clear and there's a tree well the tree is reflected accurately in that water when the water is still isn't it and this is all the time when you read any of the buddhist literature we might notice it until we pointed it out and then you're going to see it all the time this is how the mind functions it reflects so if you, if that water is turbulent what you will see is a very crooked tree. And the, the point that Buddha's making now, and this is pretty abstract, the way we live at a conceptual level, conceptuality is so fascinating, but it's all we know. It's a very gross level of cognition and very artificial. So because we live in conceptuality, we don't have direct cognition of anything. We live, we, we see everything in reflection. It sounds so weird, but the more we understand the Buddhist view, the more we'll get this. But this idea we understand that when your mind is angry, when your mind is turbulent, it is obvious. We can see it with other people. You can see it with yourself. If you just wake up in the morning irritated, you don't know why, you don't know what's happened, you're just full of irritation. This is so common. And irritation is a mild version of anger. That's all. So that everything will annoy you. It's so clear. Your husband will look annoying. Your kids will look annoying. The weather will be annoying. The cars on the, in the traffic will be annoying. Everything will make you crazy. We really understand this. So we know the next day you wake up, you're feeling kind of peaceful. The same car doesn't look so bad. The same hubby looks really nice. The same kid looks divine. But we don't join the dots. We buy into whatever we see. We don't realize it was our mind that's the problem, you know? That one day your mind is dusty, so everything appears all crowded, cloudy and crooked. One day your mind is more clear, everything looks lovely. This is a revelation to us, but it's sort of evident. We can all prove it, but we don't think it. We don't follow through with this because this is the essential point. This is the fundamental point that drives all of Buddha's teachings and all of Buddha's practice, that everything finally, literally comes from the mind. It doesn't mean like our mind literally makes up things like, suddenly creates a vase, suddenly creates an iPad, but the mind makes up the definitions and the views and the way they appear to us, but we can't see the difference. And this is the point. We've got to learn to, to see this difference. So mind is like a mirror. It functions like a mirror. It reflects. So as Lama points out here in one, in one chapter, he said that the, the, function, the fact that the mind can bear, bare bones just observe something, that's fine. That's not the problem. That's just mere awareness, the mirror merely reflecting. It's when we've got the dirt on the mirror and the cracked mirror that we start, you know, or the mirror that's got extra light on it that makes everything look extra beautiful. Then they all, we ex then the, those make us exaggerate. This is the key function of our mind. And this is the key function of the delusions, the neuroses, the first category of states of mind. Their job is to be very disturbing and to exaggerate. This is, this is precise and clear. Attachment when it's in your mind, and it's so hard to recognize it because it's so mixed with love and all the good things. Attachment exaggerates the deliciousness of something. So it's a bit like you've got a mirror and you've got a very nice looking 
you know, person. But you've got extra lights on the mirror that make the person all shiny and delicious. They look more delicious than they really are. Then you've got another mirror that's all dirty and ugly. So the person appears in that mirror as dirty and ugly. We don't realize the mirror is the problem. We think it's the person. And this is the this is the the, the insanity that we Buddha says we all experience this dualistic way of seeing the world. I'm here, the world is out there, and look at the way the world is, and it's the cause of all my happiness, it's the cause of all my suffering. We are so demented, so neurotic, because he says we don't know the way our mind functions and we don't understand these, and that's why we suffer. This is why we suffer. So, okay. What time is it? All right. I think we'll have, a, we'll go a bit more, <coughs> 10 more minutes, then we'll have a five minute break and then we'll have another hour. So now I think we might have some questions, if there are any questions, if we can manage some questions among us. Are there any questions so far? It's good to keep them as they pop up. Are there any questions so far about what I've said, just what I've said, no more? Are there anything there in the text? Nothing in the no. chat at the moment. Nothing in the chat. Okay. So if you have any points about what I've said, yeah, only about what, try and keep it on track, not about things I haven't talked about. Excuse me to blow my nose. Mm -hmm. Okay. We so first of all... I'll read a question now, Venerable Rabina. Okay, good. What is it? Yeah, uh, Paolo has asked, um, since there's no concept of an Atman or soul in Buddhism, what is the part that gets good at music? from previous lives experiences the mind that's it mind mind is what it is mind mind we're going to talk about this is exactly the point about emptiness we're going to discuss you know if there's no self it's just a question of using these understanding the definition of these words you know the mind is what does the job if you want to have any boss inside us we think i as a little self in there that runs the show no the mind runs the show the mind is the boss the mind consciousness that's what receives all the imprints that's what comes into this life programmed and that's what you know has pro is programmed every second we do something and say something whether play music or get angry the mind that's the point the mind that's the point that's what it is okay and one other question um yes. sam has asked if the eye consciousness only cognizes shape and color yeah. Could you clarify what the other sense organs cognize? Tongue, ear. Yeah, ear consciousness. Ear consciousness cognizes sound, different types of sound. Taste consciousness just, you know, maybe cognizes sweet and sour, bare, very bare bones. Senses are very bare bones. But what's fascinating, as we can see, you know, if I taste that that sweetness when I when the chocolate cake hits my tongue within a millisecond. Already, I've, my mental consciousness has kicked in, and I always say it like this, and it's true, quicker than Google, and come up with this whole description of the cake. And we actually think, I actually think my tongue is tasting this divine, delicious, top quality chocolate cake with the texture of this and the taste of that. But that's all conceptual. That's an opinion made up by our mental consciousness on the basis of the bare bones sensory experience but on our habit of knowing chocolate cake and having had it before. So our mental consciousness literally is full of all these concepts. It makes up stories. So, but they all happen so quickly. And it really is true. The second your eye consciousness sees that shape and color or the second your ear taste consciousness tastes that taste, 
quicker than Google, your mental consciousness kicks in where all the memories are, all the opinions and all the viewpoints, and then does a description. But they all happen so quickly, we just think it's one momentary experience and it's not. So it's very powerful, this. That really can help us see how our mental conscious makes things up. Like I said, you're angry one day. That person, you know, who yesterday made you happy, today makes you furious. And you really think it's the person that's got those qualities. You think because one day you're sick and the cake will look disgusting to you and you'll taste it and you'll vomit. So you blame the cake. No, what's changed is your body and your mind. The cake's the same. But we are so addicted to the outside and so addicted to, to not realising our sensory and our mental is separate and we're addicted to believing whatever we think is the external reality. This is how we suffer. We're locked into this process. Yeah. Okay, good. There's two more questions. Okay, go. Wendy is asking, what's the difference from a karmic connection to exaggerating someone's qualities? Okay, so having a karmic connection with your beloved boyfriend, let's say, I mean, whoever, whether you have boyfriends or girlfriends, I've got no idea, but let's just pretend. So, you know, Wendy comes into this life programmed with her own tendencies and programmed with her past karmic, connect, past karmic tendencies in relation to certain people. That's how can we meet certain people. It's not accidental. So you meet this, you, you see Fred for the first time, and it's like, you know, you like, it's like he's an ancient friend. You're like, wow, I know this person. Like intimately familiarity. That means you've got a strong history with that person two and a half lives ago, whatever. That's the karmic connection with that person. Then if you've had a really good past relationship, kind and virtuous and friendly and compassionate, and then you meet each other again now, you'll have a very blissful relationship now. That will be the result, one, of knowing that person before, two, therefore you meet again, and three, because of your past virtue, you have a very pleasing relationship with each other now. You appear beautiful to him. He appears beautiful to you. He's kind to you. You're kind to him. That's the fruit of your past relationship in just the same way you might meet another person and there's the very sight of them you can't stand them and they're mean to you and you're mean to them one you've got a karmic connection with them but it's due to past harming each other and you're going to bump into each other in just the same way and then due to your anger now they appear ugly and then you harm each other even more so there are karmic imprints in the mind every millisecond of what we think and do and say leaves an imprint a tendency a seed in the mind that won't go astray unless you do something with it. And then that 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 is what causes us to meet Fred. And then the kindness we have leaves a tendency. And then and then second, there's the karmic connection between people. So there's these two separate things. The karmic imprints in the mind due to having said and done things before to a particular particular person. And because of that history with each other, we bump into each other again and see each other as beautiful or ugly or whatever. I hope that helps. Other question? Thank you. Yes, one more. Um, Laxmi is asking, what in Buddhism causes the mirror of the mind to change from dusty or cracked to shiny and photoshopped? Right. Very, this is the whole point. This is the whole job. Of, that's what practice is. When you start to see your anger and, and know that your anger is the dust on your mirror that causes the people to look ugly, you your wisdom in your mind recognises that anger. You see how it's not true. You see how it's causing you misery and you see how it's polluting your mind. So you start to change it. This is the bottom. This is the fundamental job of being a Buddhist before we get anywhere near Mahamudra. This is the job of being a Buddhist. First, recognising that what your mind does and thinks determines how things appear and then two with practice 
and learning to get some concentration and learning Buddhist psychology, you can distinguish between all the neuroses and all the goodness. And then you start with your own intelligence to observe your mind and you notice the anger. And then because it's all, they're all conceptual stories, you argue with them. You change the anger. You clean your mirror. This is exactly what Buddhist practice is from almost from day one. This is the approach. And so we have to become intimately familiar with our mind, just in general, what the mind is doing, what the mind is thinking. In Mahamudra, it's a very particular kind of meditation we're going to talk about, of course. But in ordinary daily life, this is our main job, watching our mind like a hawk, catching the anger, catching the jealousy, catching the anxiety, catching the love and the compassion, and recognizing that they're not just physical experiences. They are conceptual stories programmed in our mind that then, because we're not because we're so familiar with them, they then inform our experiences. So we have to learn to get to see these conceptual stories before they come out the mouth, before they hit the body. This is really the basic level of practice we have to cultivate. And this is what takes time. Being our own therapist, as Lama Yeshi says, you know. What other questions? There's some more down there. Yes, one more from Jai. Um, Jai's asking, how is it best counter our negative views of individuals from past lives. I assume... Oh, I, I can't quite hear you, darling. Say it again. Oh. <clears throat> How is it best to counter our negative views of individuals from past lives? And he goes on, I assume channeling compassion in their direction. Would you ask... Uh, your voice gets all a bit sort of cloudy or something. Are you close to the mic? I'm doing my best. <laughs> um, there you are, yeah. Well, say it again, darling. Say it again. I missed some things. Yeah. How is it best to counter our negative views of individuals from past lives? I assume channeling compassion in their direction. Okay. There's many different methods, Jai. And then we've got the wisdom wing and we have the compassion wing. We have the two wings of the bird. And all the work of the wisdom wing is, which is how we're talking now. The compassion wing is how you help others. The first one is sort your own self out, sort out your own mind, control your own body, control your own speech, purify your own karma, know your own mind. We're dealing very much the wisdom wing here. So the first job is to sort your own mind out. The first job is to recognize it's due to karma. You meet that person at work. The first time you see that bloke at work, you can't stand the sight of him. You know you've never met him in this life. You don't know why you don't like him. You just can't stand him. We all have this. Or you adore a person. So when you understand karma, you know it's because of your karmic habits. So you analyze it. And then you then you realize anger arises as soon as you see that bloke, as soon as you hear his voice. And you just learn to realize it's your anger. So just give it a break. You know, you be, you be controlled. You learn to work on your body, work on your speech, work on your mind, so you don't begin to stop believing in those karmic appearances. This is very advanced practice. This is amazing practice. If we could do this, we'd be brilliant in the world. No one would harm each other. So this is very powerful first level. And then the more we can control our own mind, the more we understand our own mind, then we have the luxury of even now having compassion for the person. That's Compassion is necessarily more advanced, you know? especially if this person is a troublemaker and they really are mean and ugly and lie to people and harm people. That's very common. The world is full of people like that. So the first understanding is as about karma, about our own mind, so we can interpret that person correctly, and then compassion follows from that. It's, it's, it's more in that order, you know. So, of course, if a person's got lots of compassion, that'll come naturally, but we have to practice it first. So I think we should have a wee break. It's a five-minute wriggle break. And I'll be back in five minutes and we'll have another hour and then we'll have a, an hour's break. All right? So contemplate what I've said so far about the mind, if you can, for five minutes. See you soon.